welcome back to Portfolio Rescue, a show where we take questions straight from you. We've got a lot of questions, like I said last week. We're going to try to do a lightning round today. Uh, before we get to that, remember, ask the compound show at gmail.com. Duncan, last week's show, I mentioned the 50 30 20 rule, right? Of budgeting, and I said, I don't know where it comes from. A lot of these things in finance, they just sound good and they stick like the 60 40 portfolio. No one actually knows who started that or where it came from. We all just kind of subscribe to it. Right. But the 50 30 20 rule, Last Thursday, after we did the show, I was reading a book at night, kind of read before I go to bed. I was reading this book called Die With Zero by a guy named Bill Perkins. And the whole idea is if you have a lot of money, your hope should be to spend that money, either give it away to charity or spend it all on experiences before you die. Interesting concept. That's what but, you were talking about, animal spirits. Yeah. One of the chapters of that same book, he said the 50-30-20 rule comes from a very well-known politician today. It's a woman. Do you have any guesses? A politician came up with this. Uh, Elizabeth Warren? Elizabeth Warren. Before she entered politics, Warren had been a law professor with special expertise in bankruptcy and co-wrote books about why middle-class Americans go broke and how to avoid that dismal fate. She suggested the 50-30-20 rule, which she called the balanced money formula as a way to help people maintain financial stability. I had no idea. Did this not is know a, that. the Elizabeth Warren rule. Yeah, that's, that's kind of crazy. Wow. All right, so we're just going to get right into it because last week we mentioned we're overflowing with questions. Yes. So we're going to do something of a lightning round today. Rapid fire. We still have an expert coming on at the end of the show. But I think we did seven or eight questions right away. We're just going to go rapid fire. We had a lot of them, and I don't need to spend a ton of time. So uh, I think Duncan's got a timer for me. Even. Yeah, yeah he's, he's I have a timer. If I go too long. I'm going to time you on the Apple Watch, and I've actually got a sound effect timer and buzzer. So yeah. All right, let's do it. Question one. Okay. Okay, can you please explain how the Fed raising interest rates fights off inflation? I understand it can slow down the housing and car market, but how does it impact other goods, bikes, dishwashers, clothes, etc.? especially when there are supply-side issues. Would the Fed be raising rates if demand and supply were at equilibrium? This is true, that the Fed can't produce more semiconductors, they can't build more houses, they can't put more cars in the lots. Uh, here's one of the things they can do. They can make money more expensive, so maybe people don't buy a second home because, well, it's, instead of 3%, it's 5%. I'm not going to pay for another house here. I'm not going to buy a vacation home. Maybe some companies cut back on investments because the hurdle rate is not much higher. Uh, I think there's also a psychological component to this. Um, people see asset prices fall and they might cut back on spending. Bill Dudley, who's a former New York Fed chair, wrote yesterday in Bloomberg, uh, in contrast to many other countries, the U.S. economy doesn't respond directly to the level of short-term interest rates. Most home borrowers aren't affected because they have long-term fixed-rate mortgages. And again, in contrast to many other countries, U.S. households do hold a significant amount of their wealth and equities. As a result, they're sensitive to financial conditions. Equity prices influence how wealthy people feel and how willing they are to spend rather than save. So he's saying the Fed has to jack up rates to lower the stock market. And that kind of makes sense. I don't know what the unintended consequences are going to be. Like, is a recession going to be better than high inflation? I think we might get a chance to find out if the Fed has their way. But, yeah, the, the Fed can't make supply chain issues go better, get back without helping uh, demand. <laughs> a lot of pressure here. All right, let's do the next one. Shot clock. That was pretty close. All right, okay. next one. So uh, I'm the best thing about the Fed, too, is you can always blame the Fed, right, if things don't go your way? Of course, that's, yeah. That's what I like about it. Okay. Perfect scapegoat. Okay, so uh, what particular sectors or names come to mind for young investors with a 35 to 40-year time horizon? All right, easy. I don't know. I have no idea. You could say technology. That'd be an easy one. But who knows what the companies are going to be? There was this book I read. My brother got it for me for Christmas one year in, like, 2007, The Forever Portfolio by James Altucher, of all people. And he picked, like, these stocks that you could hold forever for decades and decades. Most of the stocks I've you've never heard of today because things changed. It was right before the Great Recession, and then you had all this other stuff happening afterwards, and so all the stocks that ended up doing well, you wouldn't have picked. So even picking out a decade and a half 
later is harder than three to four decades. John, throw up this chart of the, the biggest stocks in the S&P going back to 1980. Uh, you can see here in the 1980, it was basically all energy stocks. These, these stocks have turned over so many times. It's, it's so hard to pick. So maybe if you want to say like tech, technology is going to be a big part of the lives, maybe the NASDAQ 100. But if you have three to four decades ahead of you, guess what? The easiest thing to do is you bet on the market. Corporations will continue to produce profits. They'll continue to innovate. That's what you want to do. I, trying to pick certain stocks or sectors up for three to four decades in the future when the future is so uncertain is really difficult and basically impossible to do. Perfect timing. Look at that. Nailed no, it. I actually, right. I actually had a follow-up on that one uh, real fast. Uh, how, what percentage of companies do you think will no longer even be around in 40 years? A very high percentage. Yeah, that's what like, I was – yeah, it seems like a lot. Yes. Ba through bankruptcy or mergers and acquisitions or whatever, yes, picking those companies is, is ridiculous. Hard. That long, it's hard to do it for next year, next five years, 10 years, 30 or 40 right. years in the future is really difficult. Okay. So up next we have – what will bring more value in the long run for a child? Paying for a fancy private college that totals $250,000 or sending them to a mid-tier public school on a full ride and putting that $250,000 into an index fund for their retirement? Listen, this is the type of question that is way easier to answer as an older person than a younger person. Like when you're older, you can easily say like, don't spend a lot of money on a wedding because that's a waste of money, right? Or, or why would you spend all this money on college when you can just invest it and start a business and, and go bet on yourself? Like that's way easier to say as a younger person, um, like, hey, outside of the top 15 to 20 schools, it doesn't matter where your degree came from as long as you get one, right? But I think you use this as a teaching moment, right? So you can say option one, you go to a really expensive school, uh, but you forego this potential financially being set up as a young person, maybe buying your first house or paying for a wedding or whatever you want to do with the money, retiring early, or you go to a state school, but here's what you're, you know, here's what you're giving up. You're not going to go to a nice expensive school that you want to. You could be missing out on experiences. And which one do you regret more? You put all the information out there for them. You use this as a teaching opportunity. Maybe talk about compound interest a little bit before their eyes glaze over. But I say if you're going to do this, don't scold someone. Don't like force them. Give them all the information and let them make the decision themselves, right? Because again, your decision at age 18, maybe they say, you know what? I'll make my own money someday. I don't need your money. I want to go to this school because my friends are going there because that is this awesome program that I want to do. Whatever. So I, I think that's what you do. You help them make an adult decision and let them figure out which path is better for them. Yeah, no, that sounds like good advice. Also, yeah, so much of college is about what you make it. Like, there are people, yes. there are brilliant people who go to, you know, like less prestigious schools and end up, you know, being very successful. Well, Just my because favorite you go one to is private school doesn't really mean that much. Up, oh, did we lose you, Ben? Up, oh, I think we might have lost lost Ben there for a second. Let's give Ben a second to see if he comes back, and if he doesn't, then. Maybe I'll bring Matt back in. All right, so we'll uh, we'll switch this up a little bit. So we'll go ahead we'll go ahead and uh, and jump into Matt. So Matt, get uh, get ready. I'm gonna get your opinion on this. What what do you think about this uh, this question between the public uh, mid tier school and a private school? Uh, also, I should introduce you. This is Matt Warius, yeah. <laughs> uh, young advisor extraordinaire at Rahul's Wealth. We we're gonna surprise you at question uh, yeah, yeah, question yeah. eight, but yeah, sure. I'll go ahead and bring you in. Of, of course, throw me curveball right off the bat here. Uh, <laughs> love it. Uh, so I, I agree with Ben. It's much easier to answer this as an older person, just saying, having gone through the experience of, of you know, paying for these types of big events and saying, well, you know, did I really need that? But the experiences are worth something. So, you know, in terms of like, wh where are you going to go to school? You know, as long as you get a good ed education, I think, and even if it's a mid-tier school, if you're not paying as much money, 
you know, you'll probably end up okay at the end of the day. You'll end up all right. So, I mean, you know, don't, don't, don't kill yourself over it. Don't feel like you have to spend godly amounts of money on, on school, but also at the same time, you want the experience, right? You want to be able to learn the things that, you know, don't necessarily happen in college, you know, you know, meeting people, networking, all that type of stuff is important. And, uh, you know, when we're older, it's easy to say, did I really need that? But right. Uh, yeah. Hindsight it's, it's people, if it. people aren't happy with their careers, they're always going to look back and be like, Oh, I spent too much on, on college. But you know, I think, I think that some of that is, yeah. Hindsight bias. Also, we both went to school, uh, you know, very close to each other. You went to Coastal Carolina on the coast of uh, South Carolina. I went to That's UNCW right. on the coast of That's North right. Carolina. So, uh, and I, yeah, I had a great, a great experience. Um, okay, so <laughs> this is uncharted, uh, uncharted territory. Ben is still not yeah. back, so he must be having some serious. It's all good. Uh, I'm computer, Ben now. I'm the guy. Yeah, some I'm computer difficulties. So yeah, we'll, <laughs> we're taking over, and uh, yeah, I guess we'll just continue on. So John, let's keep it going. John, hit it. Let's uh, let's go Show to the next on. question. <laughs> okay so oh did we get ben back hold on let's see ben are you oh back? thank god ben thank god <laughs> i'm on my phone <laughs> the power literally just went out of my business oh my, my office <laughs> you froze i was like how long do i give it before we just like completely you know uh regroup and and continue on so but this is great this is it's not like we're live or anything you know so yeah we're only the, this is the power of life. My, the power in my whole office just literally shut down and I'm sitting here in darkness, but I'm on my phone. So, uh, I apologize for the video, but, uh, no, hey, it I, works. <laughs> it works. Where, where, where were we? <laughs> so we were wrapping up the, the college question. So we're, uh, we're, we're on to the next one. Matt had some, some good contributions there. So, uh, uh I, I Matt, guess you can hop in and help out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we'll just have Matt, Matt on, I guess. I'm in the game. Too, so I love it. The surprise <laughs> is, is over. Okay. So up next longtime viewer of the show, love all the content you put out. I'm 23 and just graduated from college. I landed my first job at a financial services firm, and I'm wondering how I should allocate my earnings. Would you recommend focusing on paying off my student loans first, around $30,000, or building up my retirement portfolio? My boring answer to this one is I like the idea of splitting it up because I think that's the simplest way to go about it, and I think building those financial habits early and saving is important. Now, it could be you're one of these people that just loves paying off debt because you hate it so much. Right, Duncan, I can't remember. Are you a Duke or North Carolina fan? Because you're you're from North Carolina. I'm a Duke fan. Okay. Yeah. So uh, some people hate debt as much as people outside of Durham, North Carolina hate Coach K and Duke. Right? Oh wow. Yeah. Well, That's pretty on, vitriolic. That's pretty vitriolic. <laughs> come on. It was in the news a lot. But I'm just saying, if if you really one of these people that just hate debt and cannot stand it and it's gonna keep you up at night, pay it off. But I like the idea of splitting it up and building those savings habits while you pay off the debt. And then when the debt's paid off, roll that those payments into your savings. For sure. I agree. I mean, you got to start contributing to the 401k at least. I think a little bit. You don't have to do a lot, but you can do both at the same time. There's no reason why not. Yes, and at least get your match. All right. Buzz it. So right on time. There we go. Um, so one one thing I had to add to that is just, yeah, the Dave Ramsey school of like no debt ever kind of thing. That that always, to me, is kind of annoying because it's like, well, you're basically telling a lot of people that they can't like go to college then if, if they can't take out student loan debt because you should never take out. You know, I feel like, like you're saying, some people are so so extreme about it that it's kind of off-putting yeah that, that's off a debt that's going to pay off for you there's good and right. bad debt for sure okay so up next we have my friend who's 38 years old has a 2.8 percent 30-year fixed mortgage roughly 24 years left and pays an extra 400 dollars each month towards her principal if she continues to prepay 400 dollars uh, towards her principal she has about 16 years remaining her house has enjoyed strong appreciation in the past six years about 85 percent according to zillow 
I told her I would show, I, I told her that I would slow pay the mortgage due to the phenomenal rate plus significant appreciation and invest the $400 a month in the stock market. What are your thoughts on this? I do think the rates matter in these things. Like I, my, my first interest rate I paid in my house was like 6.5%. And we ended up refinancing a few times to the point where we kept making the same payment and it was like double by the end. But then when we sold our house after 10 years, I realized like, wait, what was that money doing for me? It was illiquid. It was just sitting there. It wasn't that great. I think if you have that low of a payment and it's tax advantage, I think you have to think about that in terms of like, how are the rest of your finances? Are you on track with your retirement savings? Could you be using this money for something better than a 2.8% repayment on your house? Thoughts, yeah. Matt? I mean, some people just don't like debt. So, I mean, if that's how you are, you know, and it's, that's keeping you up at night, then pay it off. But yeah, otherwise, there's probably other things you could be doing with it. And that's just, you know, takes a little bit more deeper dive into your, your full picture. Um, it's a really, really low hurdle rate. Yeah. Cool. Uh, we didn't even get to the buzzer on that one, so let's uh, let's keep trucking along. Okay, so another Fed one. Uh, what happens when the Fed raises rates? Moreover, if the bond market has priced in several rate hikes, why raise rates 25 basis points per month? If six 25 basis point hikes are priced in this year, what would happen if the Fed raised to 1% in March? I don't really understand this one, I have to be honest. So. Okay, so they're basically saying the Fed has this target that they want interest rates to get to. But they're taking their time, and it's going to take them a while to get there. And if they're going to get to 2% or 3% anyway, why not just rip the bandit off and do it now? So they're taking a stair-step function where they're doing like little increments at a time. This is the hardest price, hardest part of investing is like what's priced into the market. No one really knows because there are no counterfactuals. And I think the idea is like if they ripped the bandit off and did this, what would they be signaling? Like things are worse than people think. Would there be like a meltdown, some counterintuitive reaction? Like maybe the bond market would be worse than the stock market in this case. Uh, I think it's mostly psychological because people can't handle big, huge changes right away. And throwing the kitchen stick, I think people would just freak out because so much of it is psychological. Uh, yeah, I can't believe I'm doing this for my phone. We, uh, yeah, I know. It's <laughs> surreal. Uh, for, 45 seconds left on the on the timer, Matt. Do you have anything to add? Here. Let's just do the next one and then we can spend some time on okay, that right. question. All right. So up next, uh, I'm 44 and single with no kids. I have a net worth of around $425,000. College educated and a financial controller at a commercial real estate firm in Chicago. Uh, I would have more if Twitter had performed better, though I didn't sell any, I, or I haven't sold any. I own 5,550 uh, 5, shares at $29.83 cost basis. What do you think about where I am? Okay, so this one was obviously sent to us before Elon Musk decided to hop in and yeah. buy 9% of Twitter. And the shares shot up 30% this year. So now this guy's up like 65% on his shares. John, throw the chart up of Twitter. Uh, this is Twitter since the IPO. Has not done great. So the S&P is up like 200% since Twitter went public. Twitter is up like 15%. That includes this week's run-up in prices from Elon Musk taking over. Uh, I think it's funny this guy included Twitter in his asking how he's doing. But because I think if, if your whole financial ecosystem is based around how one stock is doing, uh, and it has to make or break you, that's kind of tough. The other thing is like you have an amount of money. The idea of answering like where am I? I think that's hard to do because you have to answer like, where do I want to be? How much do I want to spend? When do I want to retire? What are my goals? Uh, so Matt, someone comes to you and says, here's how much money I have. Here's my age. Here's where I want to be. Like, how do you help them understand like whether you're on the right track or not? Yeah, I mean, it, it's every situation is different. So we really have to take a look at everything that's going on and, and kind of see like, all right, where do you want to be? How do you envision the rest of your life playing out? And what resources do you currently have to get there? 
and what capabilities do you have to continue to, to add to these goals and, and you know, what's prioritize them? So know, I did a back of the envelope for this one. If this guy did nothing else at $425,000 or whatever he has, he earned 6% of his money, he retires at 65, he's got like $1.3 or $1.4 million. If, since he's a listener of the show, he's maxing out his 401k, he's maxing out his Roth IRA, so that's $26,000 a year, call it. If he did that in addition to what he already has, he'd have like $2.3 million. So I think you take that and you say, I don't know what the markets are actually going to do, but if I need more than that, I'm going to work longer, I'm going to save more. If I need less than that, maybe I can save less now or retire a little earlier. So I think that's how you look at those goalposts along the way. I cheated. I just did that one when you finished. So, <laughs> okay. uh, I think that was. I think that was all our lightning round. We we did pretty good. I think we got through seven of them, and we we held two questions for Matt. We were going to bring Matt in now before I had my uh, technical difficulties. <laughs> Back to schedule and, uh, programming. There, there's a there's a storm here today, so yeah, my my power went out. Uh, but uh, let's do a couple more. We got one four that we've got from Matt here. Uh, and by the way, a lot of these questions I think are for from younger viewers which i think is great and a lot of people so we wanted to bring matt in since he, he specializes working with some younger investors so so let's ask the question here okay so uh what are some good questions to ask when selecting a financial advisor especially as a young person all right really great question because i think this is one of the hardest things for people to understand like i don't know because you go to the hospital and they give you a doctor you don't like select them a lot of things uh, you don't really know what you're looking for so so matt why don't you talk about when you're talking to prospective clients uh, what are the things they should be looking for and what are the, some of the red flags that maybe they shouldn't be asking questions about? Yeah, definitely. It's a great question. I think anyone looking for an advisor, you have to be seeking out a long-term relationship. You want something that's going to last. You don't want to hop around a bunch, go from advisor to advisor. So you really want to take it seriously. You want to do your due diligence and you want to ask the right questions, right? So there are wrong questions to ask as well. So you know, right questions being obviously the, the obvious ones. Are you a fiduciary, right? Are you going to serve my best interests at all times? Uh, if you're a younger investor, I think a key question is, how do I fit into your firm's philosophy given where I am in life right now? And how is that path going to evolve for me as a client of the firm, right? And and what- Yeah, what you're right. Serve, you know, as a young person, you could- you could have certain things that are going on in your life and you have life events that change. So it's like, how can you help me along the way as I have these changes happen? Right. So what are the services that I should be seeking out right now that you can provide to me? How will that change? And then what are the fees around those services? Do the fees change, right? Obviously, you don't want to be paying a ton of money for stuff you don't need. So you want to be cognizant of that as well, I think. Um, so, you know, and then we can get into like investment philosophy. If you're someone who is a little bit more experienced when it comes to investing, you've done some on your own, right? Obviously, you want to make the relationship as easy as possible uh, to be able to stick with it for a long time. So you want to make sure philosophies align, I think. Yeah. Uh, I also think one of the most important things is, like, what does the relationship look like going forward? Like, how are you going to work with me? How, how often are we going to talk and communicate? Because I know yeah. we, that can vary for our clients. Some people want to have their hand held and talk all the time. Some people want check-ins, you know, irregularly. So it kind of depends, like, how are you going to work with me and how are you going to fit with my schedule and personality? Yeah, I, I think the key is expectations have to be aligned in the beginning. So spend yes. time with whoever you're talking to, talk to more than one firm, and really make sure that you're you're getting you're setting out on the right foot in terms of what the expectations are for both the advisor and the client. And both should want, desire the same thing in terms of having a long-term relationship uh, that's beneficial to to most importantly the client. Right. A lot, yeah, a lot of, of it value. comes down to here's what I want out of you. Can you actually fulfill what I want? Or are you just telling me what I want to hear? 
I agree. Yeah, what, yeah, definitely. Uh, do you ever get any like personal questions, like uh, your favorite music or sports or stuff like that? I mean, because it, it <laughs> yeah, seems like yeah. it seems like people would naturally want to know that stuff if they're going to have a long term relationship. Definitely, I, I you know that that's the fun part is getting to know people and and really getting to mesh with certain people and see like, hey, do we even get along? You know, sometimes you don't get along with somebody. It has nothing to do with finance or numbers. Or, or your financial plans. And it's like, all right, you know, we just get along and I, tr I trust this person. I think trust is a huge thing. Obviously, it seems obvious, but you want to trust whoever you're seeking out as an advisor. Um, so that, yeah, that a lot of times you want to work with someone that you that you like and respect. And yeah, yeah. trust, I think, is the big element for sure. Yeah. 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 I would need to ask yeah. favorite Beatles album. Sorry, I just put that in the chat. But no, I'm just yeah. saying. By the uh, way, I think worst, yeah. that, Duncan, worst podcast question ever Beatles or Stones? Right? Oh, because well, because of the obviousness of it, you know, it's like it's not well, even it's, a contest. It's also like but. yes, it's yeah. Okay, right, let's do the next one. <laughs> I probably just made a bunch of people mad. Uh, okay, no, so last but not least, uh, I'm in my 30s and can now afford to buy a house full cash without taking any debt. However, with interest rates so low, and they wrote this one a while back, but should I take a uh, take a loan anyway and finance the house and invest my capital in the stock market? I think this this is interesting that like rates could change the story going from a three percent mortgage rate to a five percent that hurdle changes. Um, so nine months ago, I would have said you'd be nuts to pay in full cash. Now maybe it, it kind of makes sense. But first of all, kudos to this person for having that amount of money. I don't know where they live to be able to buy in cash, but that that's great. But so Matt, you're thinking through this type of decision with a client, and this is the kind of thing where there really is no right or wrong answer, right? A lot of this is personality driven and depending yeah. on what the person wants to get out of it. So how do you help someone work through a big decision like this? Because this is this is a huge decision. We're talking about a huge lump sum of money, you know, six or seven figures here, potentially depending on how much home yeah. they're buying. Yeah, like a lot of these questions, there are a lot of qualitative elements that need to be addressed, right? As opposed to just where can I make the most money? You know, what should I what should I do in that sense? It's really about, you know, what's the opportunity cost, right? What other goals do you have that this money you could be throwing into equity in your home could be used for, right? Do you have kids? Do you want to help them get to college and go to college? You know, if they're young, you might want to front load a 529 plan and use some of this money for that. So that's just one example, but there's a lot of things that, you know, play into this as opposed to just, hey, I've saved up the money. Should I just throw it all into my house? I also think, yeah. especially when you're young, uh, borrowing money makes more sense to me because especially with a house that offers more liquidity, flexibility, you can't really spend your house in a pinch. You could obviously borrow against it, but having yeah. some flexibility to do something with that cash and then still having that cash to, if, if, if you realize a few years down the road, like I made a mistake here, you can still pay it off eventually, right? You still have that cash somewhere. So, so I think that, that is the kind of thing where it's, it's hard to take that one back. If you buy the house in all cash, obviously maybe one of the things now is, well, if you're getting into a bidding war, having all cash could, could make more sense and help. But I think, especially when you're young, you, you lose some of that flexibility by just having it paid off. Definitely. I mean, the interest rate part of it is is pretty big, I think. I mean, you know, a couple months ago, you know, it's, it's like you said, it's more obvious. But still, even with where we're at today, you want the flexibility. You want to be able to fund other parts of your life. Having everything tied up in equity, you know, is, you know, is it, it could be restraining a little bit. But again, you got these people, they just hate that. So, you know, if that's the type of client that I'm dealing with, you know, the conversation is going to lean that way. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing, you know, we can 
you know, we could, we could gear towards that type of conversation if it's required for the person that we're dealing with. So right. Duncan, I'm not going to make a coach K Duke reference here. Cause I know it's a, it's a touchy subject right now. I didn't, I didn't realize it's rough. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> been rough. tough weekend, a tough way for them to go out. The literally the worst team they could have lost to, you know, everyone knows that, I guess, but yeah, yeah, that so, had, that had to be tough. It's, uh, it's rough. All right. Thanks to Matt for stepping in here. I've been in this office for six years, seven years now, almost. And, uh, I've never lost power before, so yeah, glad I could be the one on here today to this experience it. Yeah, this Thanks is great. Thanks for stepping in. Yeah. Uh, we got to mention, no <laughs> portfolio rescue next week because Duncan and I will be in Miami recording a live edition of Animal Spirits that, if we figured out, can hopefully go up on this channel at some point. Uh, keep those questions and comments coming. Remember, ask the compound show at gmail.com. Uh, thanks guys thanks everyone for watching and we'll be back in two weeks one, one other thing then. don't forget we're also available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so make sure you, you've subscribed and give us a rating all that kind of stuff it, it helps a lot so yeah thanks everyone we have, we have a fancy new cover with Duncan and I on it our pictures <laughs> it's true it looks amazing feel famous <laughs> alright thanks everyone for watching see ya this podcast is for informational purposes only is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast. If you're new to investing, check out liftoffinvest.com to get started with us today.